Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. Love and Other Consolation Prizes has been described as a powerful novel, heart-rendering, and life-affirming. Author Jamie Ford, on the heels of his bestseller Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet, has penned another big-hearted novel inspired by a true story. Jamie joins me for this edition of Think Humanities, and I'm excited to welcome Kentucky Humanities Kentucky Book Fair Project Director Brooke Raby to the podcast for the first time. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Happy to be here. Jamie will be our special guest at the Kentucky Book Fair Literary Lunch, sponsored by Center College on November 18th at noon at the Kentucky Horse Park's All-Tech Arena, the site of this year's book fair. Uh, Brooke, before we jump into Love and Other Consolation Prizes, tell us a little more about Jamie's appearance at the book fair. So this is the second year that we've done the literary lunch, and we, we kind of revived it, and uh, we we're, we're want it to be an integral part of the Kentucky Book Fair. It really is a unique and really just kind of a cool event. It's ticketed. Uh, it usually comes with a copy of the book and a really nice kind of a lunch that's tailored to the themes of the book or the settings of the book. Um, and it's a it's a nice way to, to get to know someone that you read or maybe someone that you want to read and haven't had the chance to yet. Um, Jamie is really good in those situations from all evidence presented. <laughs> so we are really excited to have him for this second uh, this second annual event. Um, the, the menu is shaping up really, really great. We followed a nice uh, Pacific Northwest kind of uh, a kind of a, a cuisine pattern, and uh, the tickets are still available. We do have some seats left. They're $50 a ticket, and that includes um, a copy of Love and Other Consolation Prizes, a book talk with Jamie himself, uh, a signing afterwards, and, of course, lunch. And you can buy those tickets online at kyhumanities.org, or you can call 859-257-5932. Good job. Thanks. Wow, nicely done. Phones are ringing. <laughs> Jamie, if, um, if listeners to the podcast uh, haven't uh, read uh, sure. Love and Other Consolation Prizes, uh, uh, it's intriguing. Uh, it has uh, a lot of history. It's based on a true story. It is. Uh, the uh, 1909 World's Fair is in there, but... Tell us more, just to sort of uh, give us a framework of what we're going to talk about. Yeah, the, you know, the new book is really, it's bookended by the two World's Fairs in Seattle. Most people are familiar with the 62 World's Fair, with the Space Needle, and Elvis came to the World's Fair. But Seattle also had a forgotten World's Fair set in 1909. And it was an interesting time period because Seattle had this vibrant suffrage movement, and it had a, a weird political structure that was commingled with its red light district. And at the fair itself, it was just a look back at how things were a hundred years ago and how things had changed. I mean, they had ethnographic exhibits, which were basically a human zoo and people would pay money to go look at indigenous people. And they had uh, newborn babies in baby incubators. And they also had this very unusual thing in that they had themed days. And so on every day they raffled off something. And on September 15th, 1909, which was Washington Children's Day, they actually raffled off a boy. And his name was Ernest. And I've always been curious whatever happened to this child. And so I've, I've, I've really written his life story. All three of your novels uh, have been, uh, it's very evident, deeply researched. and yeah. uh, Almost too much. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, one uh, looked at World War II. Uh, the other was a, a period uh, uh, before that. This one, this one goes back uh, 
uh, to the era uh, that you're going to talk to about. Uh, but it also had uh, the the Asian influence of yeah, um, of what happened in those periods of time, whether it was World War II or or in the 1900s. Sure. So so talk about um, your heritage, your ancestry, sure. and and how that's been incorporated into what you write. Yeah, my um, my last name is Ford. And I, I got that name in a peculiar way. My, my great-grandfather was a man named Min Chung, and he came to this country in 1861. And around 1890, he changed his name from Min Chung to William Ford. Um, I always say that's like someone coming to this country now from Pakistan and changing their name to Chuck Norris. You know, it's this <laughs> red-blooded American name. Let's do this. Get, get our America on. And I was always curious about that generation of of what compelled people to come here? What were the, the unique circumstances, especially as you got closer to 1900, because there was an exclusion act that restricted uh, immigration, and yet people still were coming, and they were smuggled in from Canada by boat, um, and there was a whole trade of smuggling in workers, um, men to work in canneries, women to work um, as seamstresses or in more nefarious lines of work. Um, and I was curious about that. And so my main character's journey begins in China, ends up coming to Seattle, and then things get slightly more complicated from there. You're the son of a, um, of a Chinese uh, uh, yeah. father. Yeah, my dad spoke Cantonese fluently, went to Chinese school after school, after public school, to shed his country Cantonese accent, mm -hmm. uh, which is always kind of like the... Uh, uh, you know, the Chinese equivalent of an Appalachian accent, basically. Mm. And by the way, uh, on your website, that people can um, can look at this uh, along with us, uh, you and your, your great-grandfather yeah. look so much alike. It's crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When, I, when I finally saw that photo, I had seen some other photos of him, but at that age, I think, he, you know, I think he's in his 80s in that photo. Um, yeah, we look remarkably similar. Yeah. And, and am I mistaken in uh, thinking that that all three of your novels have a uh, have a young uh, protagonist uh, that that all so all three do? Yeah, it's sort of my my Seattle coming of age trilogy. Um, I'm actually going to grow up now and, and move on with this next book <laughs> to a, a different age. But I I really like that age around like a sixth grade age of, of a, being 12, 13. Once you hit puberty, things get complicated but I love that age where and I remember that age distinctly where you look around and suddenly you're aware of, a, of an adult world and things have uh, a heaviness to them and you go from everything being idyllic to suddenly everything is a consequence so um, where does love uh, fall on the library bookshelf uh, mm, fiction historical fiction uh, there's a little there's yeah. a uh, um, uh, there's some nonfiction, obviously. I mean, I mean, it's based true. on based on a true story. Um, yeah, it's um, it's interesting. It's the book is very much a love story. Um, I set out to to write a certain kind of uh, you know create a story that has a certain kind of feeling, but it's also a story about race. It's a story about class. <clears throat> In many ways, it's a story about the roles of women um, from a hundred years ago and how things had progressed, and in many ways, not progressed by the time we reached the 60s. Um, and then there are, you know, the main character of Ernest was a real character. Um, it's interesting, I, someone had recently read the book and I was in another interview 
and was talking about the character. Um, there's a character named Florence Nettleton. She's known as Madame Flora. She runs a, a high-class brothel in Seattle's Red Light District. Um, she's a real character, hmm. and many people don't realize that. Um, I, I knew her name. I had a, a whiff of her history from a police record, and I actually did an event a week ago, and a gentleman came up to me and said, I knew that woman. Mm -hmm. um, Intimately. Yeah, I know. I, I was like, how much did you know this woman? Um, uh, not, not so intimately, because he was just a little boy at the time, but his father um, ran a furniture store that provided uh, the beds to this, uh, this house of ill repute. Mm -hmm. And he and his little brother would tag along when they were delivering furniture. And the ladies that worked there would bake cookies for the, the little boys, and they would take them home. And uh, their mother would never let them eat the cookies from the brothel for some reason. But, uh, yeah, it was just one of those funky moments where you write historical fiction, but it is historical. And there are real people that have connectivity to those people and places. And the girls in the brothel were educated? That, that yeah. part of it's true? Yeah, yeah. Madame Flora and her pre there was an, a, a predecessor in that same area of town um, was very plugged into the city council, um, a, a wealthy woman, um, very well-spoken and erudite. And, um, you know, some of the, the, the women that fell into her, her employ, they didn't have a ton of options. Um, one was a young woman who fell in love, married a man, and then found out that she had married a man who was already married. He was a bigamist. So he was arrested, sent to prison, but she was marked as a fallen woman. No one would hire her but Madame Flora, these kind of things. So really hard luck stories from, you know, 115 years ago. Um, and, and just the, the confluence of things that were happening in the city at the time with a, a suffrage movement happening simultaneously um, in a city where the mayor and the police chief opened a brothel together. Um, I mean, just it's a it's a frontier town on the the verge of uh, becoming modern and trying to shed its wild ways. So, would it be was like accurate to say that perhaps maybe you learned about Ernest because you knew about Florence first, or did you know about oh, Ernest? First? No, no, I, I learned about Ernest first. You know, I really I was exploring the World's Fair. I, it, it was hard to look at the World's Fair without the mention of this boy. Mm -hmm. and, and in 2009, there's a museum in Seattle, the Museum of History and Industries, and they were celebrating the 100th anniversary of that fair. And they actually commissioned a lawyer to try to find out what happened to this boy. And as far as I can tell from what I've read, um, she found that the records at the Children's Receiving Home, where they gave away a lot of children, yeah. Um, were all destroyed in the 30s. But there were news articles from the director of the receiving home um, basically talking about giving away children, and people would write into the paper, and there was an article I, I, I read in 1910, uh, an editorial saying, um, uh, I'll take your ugliest boy. I need someone mm. about 12 to work on the farm. And the man replying, saying, well, I don't have the ugliest one, but I have a boy who will suit your needs, and you know, basically will make this happen. So it wasn't super complicated to adopt a child at, during that era. Many were taken from, you know, single moms who were unwed and, and uh, found them, those children found, you know, uh, themselves recirculated through the system. Um, and so I was really curious about that whole world. And then when I looked at the, the landscape of Seattle at the time, there were definitely two forces, two confluences, the suffrage movement, uh, which was a, a precursor to uh, a much stronger suffrage movement later 
part of the suffrage movement in Seattle at the time was almost a prohibitionist movement. And they wanted the vote because they wanted to outlaw, outlaw mm-hmm. alcohol mm-hmm. Um, and other vices. Um, and then there was, you know, beneath that was mm-hmm. this red light district. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the other thing that, that I learned uh, that I'd like for you to talk about, uh, you uh, have said, uh, you just said that, that a lot of these uh, young boys uh, were from uh, broken homes or unwed mothers. But uh, in, in Ernest's case, I mean, t- talk a little bit more about the migration uh, and and how that occurred, and those uh, you you describe um, graphically the yeah. uh, the the horrendous conditions that they had to live through. I mean, th- that was. Uh, do, do you have any idea what, what what was the number? I mean, it went on. Uh, Mr. Turnbull, I, I remembered said <laughs> it was his shipping company that right that did that that supplied some of the some of the boats that the the young people came over on. Yeah, I mean, there's in the mid 1800s there was an industry. Um, you know, crudely referred to as black birding. And it didn't necessarily refer to black people, but it was taking indigenous people from, uh, from Asia or, you know, from Fiji or someplace and basically stealing them, conscripting them, press ganging them into service and selling them as migrant workers. Um, and so a lot of people were being trafficked to this country and it didn't stop until the League of Nations outlawed it. Um, decades later, um, a little-known blip of history. What, what what year was that, approximately? Uh, that it stopped. Yeah, in the twenties. Okay. Yeah. So this this industry kept going from you know the mid eighteen hundreds into mm-hmm. you know into a modern century. Mm-hmm. A lot of migrant workers that ended up in places like Hawaii and California in the late eighteen hundreds. Some of them came on their own, and some of them were sold into servitude. Um, and a lot of that history has just been lost. And so Ernest is is caught up in that wave, and he's living in southern China. And I thought about my own grandfather, or great-grandfather, of why he would come to this country. And it's, it's very much the same reasons people fled Ireland during a famine. It was a time of famine. It was, you're starving, and there's war, and there's a social class where there's the super rich and the super poor. And the super poor have no choices and so they're really buffeted by, uh, by circumstance. It's either migrate to some place where they can have a chance, or starve and die. Mm-hmm. The um, the author's notes, um, <laughs> which um, I'm sure that there may be a lot of fiction or historical fiction that, that includes author's notes. Sure. Most of the time, you find that in in other uh, work or something that was written some time ago, and then. Um, uh, that the author feels uh, a need to clarify. Uh, your, yours is uh, yours is quite clarifying. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, you you do add a few things uh, that that aren't aren't in the story. You, uh, w- what's the attempt in the in your author's notes? Oh, that's that's interesting um, because I I wrote a fairly brief author's note and my editor really wanted more. She's like, I really want you just to pour a bunch of stuff in here that that. Is kind of the, the story behind the story, and that's really what I did. It's also an opportunity for me to just have a moment of levity because sometimes mm-hmm. um, novels can be a heartbreaking journey, and then this is sort of a um, you know a, a, a debridement where we can kind of like peel back the layers and say, okay, here's where all of this came from, um, but also put it in a recontextualized mm-hmm. light where there's hope, and and mm-hmm. we're at a modern era mm-hmm. and 
we're beyond some of these moments. And that was kind of the attempt there. Was there a moment in particular when you were writing it that really that you were like, man, maybe maybe this is not for me? That I shouldn't write this or that I shouldn't put it in? Well, that you, that it became maybe emotionally overwhelming, oh, if I might ask oh. such an intimate question. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, it, it begins, the story begins probably the first eight, no, the second chapter. There's a very dark moment. And to get to that dark moment, I had to do a little bit of research and read um, historical accounts of the horrors of poverty and suffering that would lead people to flee their country. And there were stories of people, Chinese immigrants who were starving, that they were boiling shoe leather to make soup because they were dying, where you learn that the body gives off a sweet smell when it's starving. Um, and that was disturbing and distressing. And, um, I, you know, I'm able to maintain a narrative distance, but when you pour yourself into that research, it is heartbreaking. Um, but, you know, part of my job is to create compassion. And, I, you know, someone recently asked what, what I hope someone takes away from this book. And in any book I write, I want people to be a slightly more compassionate, empathetic person mm -hmm. by the end of the journey. I, I think that's, that's making the world a slightly better place. Is the bakery where Ernest stops to get Mr. Turnbull that breakfast, um, is that the one that you mentioned on your website that was uh, the actual bakery in Seattle that, that you... <laughs> you is that, is that um, well in in hotel i mentioned a certain bakery yeah bakeries and a couple of my books yeah. maybe i'm <laughs> and, I have, and to you mentioned, have to hit a krispy kreme and, and you mentioned kentucky bourbon too yeah oh, only kentucky's one time i think that i saw I mean, <laughs> kentucky bourbon shows up <laughs> yeah you know there's there's some good so good so was that an actual uh seattle bakery that was definitely a seattle oh, bakery okay. that's and i actually found their menu from, oh. from 1909. Oh, wow. And so usually if I mention a restaurant, um, an item, a street name, I, I, I that's when I say sometimes I over-research. I like to get it right. Yeah. And that was an actual bakery. That was the exact actual menu items. I know exactly what those things cost. Um, and those are just the little historical things that I kind of geek out over. Yeah, sure. Well, that may, uh, Brooke, why don't we, um, as we sort of wrap up, I want you to talk to folks about the book fair, um, uh, Jamie plus, uh, the book fair and, and just a few, uh, highlights and, and what people can expect and, and how exciting we all are at Kentucky humanities to, uh, to be, uh, at the Kentucky horse park and, and what a, a bigger and better, uh, book fair it's going to be. I just want to wax ecstatic a little bit about Jamie, just a little bit more if I might, um, because Jamie was one of the first people that came on our radar to ask and, he has been uh, really incredible the entire time, and I can't wait for people to meet him and to read this book and to read his other books, and um, he's uh, such an asset to the fair, and I'm really excited that he chose to come. Um, but in addition to Jamie, uh, we do have a lot of other really great authors, some folks that you'll be um, accustomed to seeing at this event year over year, uh, Wendell Berry, Bobby Ann Mason, George L. Lyon, Frank X. Walker, Crystal Wilkinson, um, people, Richard Taylor, Frederick Small, people that you know and love and, and probably see around your towns. Um, but we'll also be bringing in some authors that maybe haven't been here for a second, like Karen Robards, um, Rita Mae Brown, 
Darren Wong, who is actually the founder of the Decatur Book Festival, which is the biggest book festival in America at this point. He's really lovely. Um, I, I not for long. Well, not not for long. It's oh, right. He's retired now. Yeah. yeah. I, I just met him a couple weeks ago. Isn't he he's cool? a great guy. Yeah, he's been him. so nice. Um, no, I mean, not for long. The the biggest and best in the country. Oh well. <laughs> well, I'm not going to try to I'm not going to okay. try to come up against a yeah. on this podcast. But anyway, um, <laughs> but um, um, trying to think who else. There's so many. Um, Chris Whipple. Chris Whipple will be here talking about the Gatekeepers, which is his new book about the presidential chiefs of staff. Um, and he'll be joined by Tori Merton McClure, who's the president of Spalding University. Um, really excited to have Bell Hooks in conversation with Crystal Wilkinson on the main stage as well. Um, and uh, we're, we're partnering with some really great organizations like Face It out of Louisville to bring in some, some authors who are survivors of child abuse to share their experiences through literature and how they overcame the trauma of those experiences as well. Um, we really hope people will come out. It's in a new location, but we're really optimistic that this, this location is going to be great. We're not optimistic. We're sure that it's going to be great. Uh, and it's a, it's a convenient drive for people coming in. If you're not from Lexington, it's pretty easy for you to get there. Uh, there's free parking, free admission. There'll be concessions on, on site so you can stay as long as you want. Plenty of really great programming, panel discussions on poetry, fiction, nonfiction, anything you can ask for, really. Uh, lots of really great kids authors and young adult authors as well. So we've got something for all ages, and we do hope you'll join us on Saturday, November 18th from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Altec Arena at Kentucky Horse Park. Uh, Jamie, um, you're on a, a book tour. Uh, you, you drove into the, to our podcast today. You're, you have an appearance tonight, but uh, you, you were, I think, in Evansville, mm -hmm. Lexington tonight, Cincinnati uh, tomorrow. Uh, Oh, for people who aren't familiar with uh, with with authors who do this, and, and and maybe they've read the same thing I have, you know, they dread some dread going on on tour. You seem to be uh, a fresh and uh, alert <laughs> and aware, even though you had to drive through Lexington traffic this afternoon. Yeah. Uh, uh, do, do you like being on the road? I do. Yeah, you know, most of my most of my my authorly life is spent literally just in a, a pair of Batman pajamas and a Mariner's hoodie in front of my computer for an endless amount of hours. Um, and so to, you know, to, to get out and interact with the world when you have a new book to share. I mean, that's, I, I love that because I mean, I have this monastic lifestyle and then to be able to go out and sort of be excited about something. Also just to talk to readers, talk to book clubs, visit with schools, and connect with other authors on the road. It's fabulous. Um, how much more of this tour do you have? I've probably got another three weeks. I mean, I'll, I'll bounce home a couple times here and there. Yeah. Um, and you live in Montana. I live in Montana, yeah. So it, it will continue. Um, and then I just, I have a, a really good speaking agent, and um, we're like I said, we're empty nesters as of this fall. So I just kind of yeah. told them, let's go for it. I got a new book. Let's just hit the road and um, you know, kind of crisscross the country a little bit. Yeah. Are you, um, uh, with your travel and, and making appearances and, and all of that, you, you do signings, as, uh, they're one thing, and then speaking to a group like you're going to at the Kentucky Book Fair. Um, <laughs> the, I, I, I mean, honestly, well, I, I'm sort of, uh, I'm not the, the, the average person here. I'm sort of over the top when it comes to... Uh, touchy-feely authors. I mean, I just like to be around you and I like to hear you talk about it and all that. Do you like that interaction with the when you're on a stage oh, or yeah. at the podium 
as much as you do signing in front of somebody. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I, when I go on the road, I think of it as literary vaudeville. Where I, you know, I want it to be fifty percent entertaining, forty percent education, and maybe ten percent reading. I don't read very much. I talk a lot, and I do a lot of Q and A, and I, I really share the story behind the story and uh, reveal yeah. maybe too much of myself at times. But that's kind of I think when I read a book, I don't need the author to read it to me. I want to know what goes on in that person's head, and so that's a lot about yeah. what I'm about on the road. And then happy to sign books and take photos. And um, and then sometimes I do travel a lot, and I'm also visible on a lot of different social media. So it's nice to connect with people in real life that perhaps we've been trading messages on Facebook for years, and to finally meet them is always a joy. That's great. Well, Brooke and uh, Jimmy, thanks a lot uh, for joining us on Thank Humanities. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. SoundCloud.